Oops. Important topic. Okay, well. Um, <clears throat> it's a good morning. I think I'm on Eastern time already. This is great. This is great. So, we are, our two uh, sessions this morning are going to, we're going to try to, <laughs> in some sense, overview about the first two-thirds of the book of Revelation. That is a daunting challenge before us, uh, but I'm hoping to give you an overview. I, I was telling Pastor Sam at breakfast that uh, the more I think about how complex, how complicated Revelation is, how many pieces there are and how many details there are and how, in some ways, it's mystifying to us to put it all together, uh, I wonder whether perhaps part of the Holy Spirit's purpose in giving us a book like this at the conclusion, uh, it is to reveal, I'm not coming back on key number one that we talked about last night, the purpose is to reveal, not to hide, but maybe the Holy Spirit giving us a book like this is also to remind us that there are things that happen in God's providence, in God's plan, in world history, in our own lives, that sometimes do go beyond our understanding. But, the important thing to know is that nothing is beyond our God's understanding and nothing is beyond his control. So even if we may be mystified by some things, some details in the book of Revelation, I told Sam, sometimes people ask me about this or that vision in the book of Revelation, and I have to think for a minute and think, maybe I should go back to read Triumph of the Lamb, that part again. Because back then, when I wrote it, I think I understood parts that I've forgotten now what it means. But even if we don't understand it all, if we get the big picture, God is in control, this is about Jesus Christ, it's about his victory, in the midst of telling us a very, very realistically that we're in the battle, that, that, is, that is absolutely crucial. Um, before we get into today's, this morning's first outline, which is now number two, entitled, Who's in Charge Here? I want to do a couple things just to set a context. Um, one, one is to go a little bit more deeply into the chart with the colored boxes. Uh, if you just arrived this morning, you, I think, got one at the door. If you came last night, I hope you brought, brought your chart back, because we're going to look at that a little bit more to get a sense of the way this book is put together. But even before that, it seems to me that it's just very helpful for us to remember um, the way the biblical writers, the New Testament writers, look at the structuring of the whole history of the world and of the universe. I don't know if you've ever been asked, do you think we're living in the last days? Anybody ever ask that? Ever wonder that? Do you think we're living in the last days? Are we? We absolutely are. How do we know that? I can't hear all the answers, but I'm sure you're right. I'll tell you my answer, okay? Because in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, explaining why the, the followers of Jesus were speaking in the languages of all the peoples that had gathered on that Feast of First Fruits, Peter quoted the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament, and Peter said, as God said, the days are coming in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then Peter went on to explain that God fulfilled that through the death and resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ. 
In effect, Peter is saying, as of the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and his redemptive work, his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement at the right hand of God, we have been living in the last days. That's not what most people think when they ask you the question. They, they think of, you know, is there a timeline that began with my birth in 1940? I mean, not my birth. The birth of the state of Israel in 1948. And actually, over the last couple thousand years, Christians have often been debating, are we living in the last days, thinking about this or that that was happening in their lives. Around the turn of the, of the millennium, from 1,000 into the 1,100s, there was a lot of debate among the church about, are we living in the last days? It's been a thousand years since Jesus rose. Well, the way the Bible answers the question is, from the first coming of Christ, from his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement at God's right hand, we've been living in the last days. And if we wonder whether that was just an off statement of Peter, it's not, because as a matter of fact, the very first verses of the book of Hebrews says that God spoke in many parts and many ways in the past through the prophets to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, who's the radiance of his glory, who made purification for sins and has taken his seat at the right hand of God's majesty. So again, the New Testament, the Bible, start, traces the beginning of the last days, the beginning of the end, from the first coming of Christ. That's the first thing I think it's important for us to notice. Then the second thing, now let's look at our chart for a minute. Let me explain it a little bit more. We ran by that rather quickly last night. Um, as I mentioned, as you move from left to right across the chart, we're moving in the unfolding of history. And so in a certain sense, at the very left margin, we are starting with the beginning of what I just said, the last days, the coming of Christ. Uh, but in the first several chapters, uh, we looked briefly last night at the instruction that Jesus, the Son of Man, gives to John at the end of Revelation 1, where he says, now, in that opening vision, you're to write down what you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will happen after this. And for the next three chapters, basically... Chapters 1, 2, and 3, John is given a series of seven messages for seven churches that are all located in cities in Western Asia, as the Romans referred to it. We would call it Asia Minor, and now it's within the nation of Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, and the others, all the way around to Laodicea. Those are the things that are. That's the condition of the churches of that time what they were experiencing, the challenges that they were experiencing, some persecution from outside, such as Smyrna and Philadelphia especially, but others as well were facing persecution, Pergamum facing persecution. Some of the churches were more threatened by dangers from within, spiritual false teaching, complacency in materialism and affluence like in Laodicea. Those are the situations of the churches, the things that are. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in just a minute in chapter 4, John is given this vision of God seated on the throne, the scroll in his hand, which is in effect God's plan for outworking the advance of his kingdom in the world to the end of history, 
And then in chapter 5, it will be the topic of our sermon tomorrow morning in worship, the Lamb appears who receives the scroll and begins to open the scroll. And at the beginning of chapter 4, John is told, now talk about the things that will take place after this. So these are things now from chapter 4 on, by and large, that are future from the standpoint of John's first century hearers. Now, not all of them are very distant future. One of our other keys that we saw last night is that a lot of Revelation is about things that are about to happen. The time is at hand. Things that will happen soon. And we're going to look at that this morning a little bit. But by and large, we're going to be looking at things more to the future, although some visions come loop back around, give us another video replay, another camera angle on even earlier history. Now, that's the basic structure of the book. Historically, also, the visions, some show that God is going to manifest his just judgment against his enemies and his defense of those who belong to Jesus, who are followers of of him, not necessarily defending Christians from violent persecution, but defending them against the destruction of their faith, that God is going to do that in restrained ways, holding back the display of his wrath, holding back the hostility of Satan who wants to destroy the church, restraining for, well, we'll see, a long period of time, And then some of the visions show God, in a sense, letting loose his wrath. And even for a very little time at the very end of history, letting loose Satan to draw together a a consortium, a collection, a collaboration of evil forces to try to destroy the church. So there's the, the... other perspective, and we're going to see this illustrated, especially in our, our first uh, hour here this morning, there's the perspective of God manifesting his justice against his enemies in a restrained way, previewing what will happen at the end of history in an unrestrained way, age of restraint, followed by an age of consummation that immediately precipitates Christ's second coming, the great last battle, the last judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the flow of history, moving across from left to right. Now, in the flow of the book, we see these shown in various ways. So the first five seals... We're going to look at them a little bit more in depth in chapters, uh, basically in chapter 6. Almost all the seals appear in chapter 6. The first five seals all portray things that are happening in the age of restraint that touched right into the life of John's first century readers and hearers and conclude where we're living, I think, at least still today, an age of restraint. God exhibits his wrath. Satan fights with all his might, although he can't destroy the church, but God's holding him back. 
And then the sixth seal actually brings a preview of the very end of this present heavens and earth. It's, it's the, the decomposition of the present heavens and earth. And then there's an interlude. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, and then seal seven gives us one more vision where we see that the church is praying on earth. It really introduces for us the cycle of the trumpets that follow. And the trumpets, again, trumpets one through four, show that God restrains his wrath in some ways. But those restraint, that those restrained expressions of God's judgment are previews of the ultimate expression of God's judgment. And in trumpets five and six, again, we see the escalation that comes leading right up to the second coming. And between, interestingly, between seal six and seal seven, there's an interlude that promises God's protecting his people. And between trumpets six and seven, there's another interlude that also says God's protecting his people. And that's what brings us to the end of what we're going to talk about in the next 44 minutes. Wow. I'll save the rest for last, for later, for the next session, when we go back to the blue boxes that toward the bottom. Okay, now then. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I didn't know the name of them, I had to look it up, but those nesting, nesting dolls that uh, are made in Russia, beautifully painted dolls, usually bright red, sometimes the black background, but beautifully ornate. They're called matryoshka dolls. Matryoshka dolls. And you open up the lid of the outer doll and there's a, a slightly smaller doll inside. And then you open up, and maybe a different color, probably black or something. Open up that and maybe there's a white doll with beautiful ornate. And you open up that and you get down inside. You move from outside to the inside and finally get to the smallest doll of all. Revelation is kind of like that. As you read through the book of Revelation, we move from... The letters to the churches, which I'm kind of, I'm kind of going to kind of bypass. I've I referred to them a little bit last night. But chapters two and three, the Son of Man that John sees at the end of one, he begins to address a message for each of the seven churches in the cities of Asia, starting with Ephesus, ending with Laodicea. And in a certain sense, in that, in that section, we see Sometimes in symbolic form, even as Jesus is speaking to them. But we see kind of the conditions of the churches. We see what's, what's pretty visible on the surface of things. The church of Ephesus is commended and praised by Jesus for standing fast for the faith, for resisting false teaching, for exposing heretics that are trying to lure the church away. But then Jesus says, I do have something against you. You have abandoned your first love. You don't love each other. Probably that's what he's referring to. Maybe he's saying you don't love me, but he does commend them for being faithful to the gospel. So maybe he's saying in all your zeal to be orthodox and true to the word, you've forgotten that you also have to speak the truth in love toward one another. When Paul wrote earlier to the church at Ephesus, that's what he said. We need to speak the truth in love. 
At the end of the first century, Jesus, through John, says to Ephesus, you've spoken truth well, but not so much in love. And you go through those churches, and the church at Thyatira, Jesus says, your love is great, but you're a little shaky on the truth. You're letting false teaching in. It's great that you love each other, but don't forget you also need to be faithful to the truth. Some of the churches are commended for being faithful, like Smyrna and Philadelphia. And they're the ones that have faced the, the hardest persecution. Some of the churches are rebuked for being fundamentally unfaithful, like Sardis and Laodicea, because they've gotten complacent, they've gotten comfortable, they've forgotten that they're in a battle. But that's the surface, in a sense. Those are what the churches were facing. Symptomatic of the dangers that face the churches in all generations. So that's why, as we read those, we think, boy, that fits in sometimes in places. That may fit our congregation or our denomination at various points. Uh, we need to hear Jesus commending us, but we also need to hear Jesus rebuking us at points. That's, that's the outer matryoshkadal, okay? Now, when we come to chapters 4 through hmm, into 7, when we come to the seals, the vision of the Lamb who receives the scroll who opens the seals, now we're getting a little closer to the center of things. Behind the surface of the problems that those first century churches faced and that we experience in various ways, behind that, there is the work of the Lamb as he continues to rule world history now from the throne of God at the right hand of God as the glorified, exalted God-man who has won the victory. In one sense, the vision that we're going to be looking at tomorrow morning in depth in Revelation 5, when the Lamb receives the scroll from God the Father and begins to open the scroll is a visual, a visual picture of what Jesus said to the disciples at the end of Matthew 28. You know it as the Great Commission when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That actually is an echo of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. From Daniel 7. And Jesus says, it's happened now. I've ascended with clouds to the Father's right hand. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. So, the seals, the vision that leads to the opening of the seals is a way of God saying, now, Jesus Christ is revealing to his servants What's going on behind the scenes in the events of history and the events of our lives and the events of the experiences of the churches? He's revealing these things because he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So I'm going to kind of bypass right now that vision in Revelation 5 because we really are going to revisit it in more depth in worship tomorrow. But that's... That's what leads us then to these seals that are broken. And the first four seals 
reveal, this is beginning in chapter 6 now, so if you want to, I, I won't be reading as much as I did last night, that whole first chapter, but I'll refer to things. So if you want to keep your Bibles open to Revelation 6 and following, you can look down from time to time. So the, the first four seals are all grouped together because at the breaking of each seal, two things happen. An angel issues a cry, or a, uh, one of the living, spe- one of the, excuse me, chapter six, um, one of the four living creatures who are right in the presence of God issues a command, come, and in response to the command, come, a horse proceeds, and John sees a rider on the horse. Those, that's the, that's the, that's the scenario for the first four seals. And when the first seal is broken, John sees a rider on a white horse who carries a bow and rides forth to conquer. Conquering and to conquer. Now, students of Revelation debate who the rider in the white horse is. That's the first, that's the only point on which there's any debate in the book of Revelation. That's a joke. Just want to make sure you're awake. One of many places where there's debate. Um, and some, some students of Revelation that I've read and I respect a lot think that this rider on the white horse is the same, symbolizes the same rider on the white horse that we see in chapter 19. Chapter 19, the rider on the white horse who bears a sword is labeled the Word of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's clearly Jesus coming back at the end of history. And some say, well, this is the same rider. I'm not persuaded that it's the same rider. For one thing, this rider has a different weapon. But also, this rider is grouped with these four. All of the rest of them, the other three, all represent the damage done to humanity when tyrants want to control more territory. So I would suggest... But if you want to argue with me on this, I'm fine with it. I was, this rider on the white horse with the bow represents, at this point, represents the, the desire to acquire more control over the world. That's not a good desire. It's an evil desire. It's, it's the impetus that human rulers have to get more and more power in the world. In John's day... Rome was wanting to expand, but Rome was also threatened in its empire, on the edges of the empire, especially on the east side, by Parthia. And the Parthians, actually, their main weapon of choice, they were great horsemen, and their weapon of choice was bow and arrow. They were amazing archers. So my hunch is that's what's going on there. And John is saying, the lamb is in control. And he's even in control of human rulers that want to advance their territory around the world. And you just think of all the history of the world. We might think these days about, well, we might think about one one example of that might be the expansion uh, that Russia is wanting to put forth again with the conquering of Crimea and pushing into Ukraine and so on. Uh, or the advance, the reformers thought very much of the advance of Islam into Eastern Europe in the time of the 16th and 17th centuries. You see it all over the place. 
conquering to conquer. What follows that desire for conquest? The rider on the red horse has a sword, and there's a lot of bloodshed. A lot of bloodshed. So the second seal, the living creature says, Come, and the rider on the red horse has the right to take peace from the earth that people should slay one another. Another effect of war, so there's just sheer conflict, bloodshed. Another effect of this expansionist, violent military aggression is famine. So the third horse is riding on a black horse, and he has, interestingly, scales. Scales used to measure out wheat in particular. And the prices that are listed there for wheat are eight times as much as would normally be paid in the ancient world. 800% inflation on the wheat, but not on the oil and the wine. That sounds strange. Why is that? Well, put yourself back in first century Asia, Asia Minor, Turkey. Lots of olive groves in that area. Lots of vineyards in that area. But grain, kind of the staple of life, that had to be imported. Either from Egypt or from what is now Ukraine on the north side of the Black Sea. And when there's warfare... And the trading trading routes are disrupted by warfare. The price of wheat goes sky high, even though the local crops are still something you can buy. That's restraint. God is restraining. He's using evil powers, but he's still restraining them. And then finally, there's the sometimes called the pale horse. Actually, John calls him the green horse. Uh, Green, not like healthy green growing things. In California right now, we've had so much rain. Even California is green. Amazing. That's good. But this is the green of corpses. It's the green of people who have died. It's, it's, it sort of sums up all the results of warfare. People who have died through sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. But notice that that last horse means only one quarter of the people have died. There's a limit. Again, we're not supposed to be thinking simply in terms of percentages, 25%, not 26%, but it's a sign that God is restraining. God is holding people back. And the point is, when you see world leaders leading in their quest for more power, leading to invasions, bloodshed, famine, disease. In the ancient world, typically, to conquer a city, you besieged the city. In the city, you cut off the city's water supply, you cut off the city's food supply. And then disease, like bubonic plague in the ancient world, which was became an epidemic at points, that, that would decimate the city in itself. When you see that happening... People of God, don't throw up your hands and think evil has conquered. Nothing happens apart from the permission of the Lamb who opens the seals. He is beginning to show the rebellious world what will happen at the end of history unless they repent and turn to him in faith. And he's 
beginning these judgments because he is zealous for justice for his suffering people. That leads us to seal 5. Seal 5, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. In the fifth seal, instead of anything happening on earth, John sees a vision of heaven. And under the altar, he sees the souls of those who have been martyred for the sake of their faith in Christ. The imagery under the altar comes from the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple. At the altar, animals were slain and their blood would flow down the altar, under the altar. And and John is saying, in effect, I see God's people who've been martyred for their faith. And they're crying out to God, how long until you bring the full judgment to bring justice, to avenge the unjust suffering that we've experienced as people have killed us. And God basically says to them, you are victors, I'm giving you a white robe that shows you're, you're victorious already because you've held faith fast by my spirit and by my power to the end. You're victors. But you need to wait a little longer. I'm not sending my son back yet to bring final justice. I'm waiting a little longer. Why is God waiting to send Christ back to the earth? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus says God's not going to send his people back until the gospel's been preached to all the nations. And Second Peter, Second Peter 3, Peter says God is being patient because he's not willing that any of those whose names, well, this is language from Revelation, but whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life should perish. God's going to bring everybody that he's chosen for salvation in his wonderful grace before creation began. He's going to bring everyone to faith. He's waiting. He's patient to bring salvation. Revelation here says, God has has planned the number of believers who will die as martyrs for their faith. That's a pretty sobering way to describe it. God says, I'm not going to send my son back to every martyr who will conquer the dragon by being faithful to death has died. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. So that's seal five. Seal six gives us, this is the end of chapter six, gives us a preview of the very end of history. This is one of those places where we see the very end and then God's going to rewind the videotape and come back to it again. But in seal six, we see this great earthquake. This is verse 12 and following. The sun blackened like sackcloth. The moon become like blood. Stars falling out of the sky to the earth as shaken by a wind. And the sky vanishes and mountains and islands are destroyed. We see this actually a couple times later in the book of Revelation. They're all views of the very end of history. So God says, I want to show you that the day is coming when all of this present world order infected by sin is going to be erased and will be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. So there's the preview of the very end. But that raises the question, especially in the mouth of the rebels who are fearful when this very end comes, when they see God coming in judgment, who can stand? Who can survive? 
when the winds of judgment blow full force on the world, who can survive when the wrath of the Lamb is fully revealed? Which brings us to an interlude. It's a kind of a, okay, take a deep breath. We've seen a lot of judgment coming. We've seen a preview of the end of judgment coming. But here's this question. Who will survive the wrath of the Lamb? And Revelation 7 shows us who will survive. Revelation 7 shows us that at the very beginning of the chapter, the winds of judgment are being held back until God seals his people. Until God marks his people as those who belong to him. Seal on their foreheads. Now, it's not a physical seal. It's not a tattoo. It's not a computer chip. It's a symbol of the fact that God is controlling his people's hearts and minds and is protecting them. So, judgment will not be fully displayed until God has gathered all of his people in by, well, actually, Jesus said way back in chapter 3. You have to read this book a bunch of times to get it. Back in chapter 3, Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia, to the one who overcomes, I will put on you my new name and my father's name. You belong to me. Sealed with the name of the Lamb until I bring my people to faith. And John hears about the people that are sealed. And what he hears is that they are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 144,000. People speculate a lot about that. 12,000, 12 tribes. Is that literally the number? Are they literally, biologically, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons? Well, there are clues here to show that actually this is a symbolic thing going on here. For several reasons. If you look at the list of the tribes in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 7, you see that it doesn't follow any of the lists in the Old Testament. Not quite. It's a lot like, and this is where we've got that little box chart in your outline, um, on the, in the lower right corner here. It's a lot like the list of Jacob's sons that we find in Genesis 39, which starts with the sons of Jacob's real wives, Leah and Rachel, and then goes on to the sons of the concubines, the servants of Leah and Rachel, uh, in that order. Not in the birth order, necessarily, but the sons of the free wives and then the sons of the slave concubines. That's the order in Genesis 39. But when we look at Revelation, chapter 7, for one thing, Judah comes first, not Reuben, the oldest. And that's because, as we know from Old Testament texts, Reuben was rejected from being the firstborn. Simeon and Levi, the next two, also were not in places of high honor because of things that they had done in their unbelief and rebellion and anger. So Judah now, the fourthborn of Leah, is promoted to place number one. Why? Well, because Messiah comes from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what we hear in chapter 5. Jesus descends from the tribe of Judah. So Judah goes number one. Then Reuben comes in. 
But the other thing that's surprising here is that the son of the slave wives, the sons of the slave wives, kind of get promoted in the list over almost all of the sons of the free wives. So we have Gad and Asher and Naphtali. We would have expected Dan, the son of the other slave wife, but instead Manasseh, one of Joseph's sons, is put in there. So you've got, in a sense, the slave wives are outsiders compared to the, the, the sons of the free wives, but now they're promoted. The outsiders are brought in. That is a preview of what the second half of Revelation 7 shows us. I mentioned last night that sometimes John will see, will hear something and then see something with different camera angles on the same thing or the same individual. So in chapter 5, as we'll see tomorrow again, he hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and therefore is worthy to open the scrolls. And then the scroll. And then he sees that the lamb has been slain and redeemed people from all the nations and therefore is worthy to open the scrolls. So Christ described in terms of some of his Old Testament qualifications, the Lion of Judah descended from David, and then his New Testament fulfillment, he conquers by dying and redeeming people from all the nations. Same thing goes on here. John hears 12 tribes of Israel, but they're not quite the tribes of Israel. And then what John sees is the same group, but now in the fulfillment he sees what they're really like. They are the people from all the world's peoples and languages and tongues that have been redeemed by the Lamb. Same group, viewed from two different camera angles. The new Israel of God, not really just 12,000 from 12 tribes, but a countless multitude from all the nations. So what this vision shows us is exactly what Paul, for example, says in a number of his letters, that the real Israel of God are the people who belong to Jesus even if our family tree cannot be traced back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of genetics. That's a great encouragement to me. My family, my, my grandparents came from Sweden. I have been reminded uh, in the past of there was, a, there was a day when the Scandinavians, even the sweet and gentle Swedes, not those vicious Norwegians, we're not so good with Norwegians, but even the Swedes would toast their military victories by drinking from the skulls of their defeated enemies. Not such a good family tree. But by grace, I'm an outsider. I bet some of you are too. And I've been grafted into the new Israel because I'm united to Jesus. That's what these visions are saying. And we are the people that are going to be protected from the wrath of God because Christ bore wrath for us and redeemed us. Not that we're protected from all of the dangers of this world, but we're protected from the coming wrath of God. So that interlude focuses on the protection of God's people. And then the final seal is broken, beginning of chapter 8. And we would expect the end of everything. But instead, in the beginning of chapter 8, when the seal is broken... 
John sees a vision of heaven again. When John sees a vision of heaven, uh, typically that means now we're going to talk about something new. And that's what happens here. What John sees is uh, angels with seven trumpets waiting to sound their trumpets. And he sees the prayers of the saints being offered like incense before the presence of God. The imagery is from the Old Testament temple. And now the incense altar, which is right before the, the veil that leads into the holy place, the saints are praying. And from that altar, that is, in effect, what the vision is saying, as a result of the prayers of God's people for relief, for ultimate justice to come upon their persecutors, the angel takes fire and throws it onto the earth, That's exactly what we see happening when the trumpets are sounded. So now we're moving to trumpets in the next uh, couple chapters. Trumpets sounded, resounding. Now, what are trumpets for? Well, in the Bible, trumpets do several things. Trumpets call Israel to worship. When the shofar is called, they're called to worship. But another key function of trumpets in the ancient world and in Israel was to sound the alarm to put people on guard when danger is approaching. God gives the charge to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I'm putting you like a watchman on the wall of Jerusalem. And when you see my judgment coming on Israel because of their disobedience, sound the trumpet. Warn the people. Call them to repentance. If you don't warn them, they're still going to die for their sin, but I'm going to require their blood from your hands. Sound the trumpet. Well, the trumpets symbolize what God sends judgments on this world. They are restrained, limited previews of the ultimate judgment that he's going to send at the end of history on the rebellious world. And they should function to call people to repentance. As with the seals... So with the trumpets, the first four are grouped together in chapter 8. The first four all concern, well, the first three in particular concern fire coming down from heaven to affect different parts of the world. Fire comes down on the land and burns up the land, trumpet one. Fire comes down on the sea, a mountain, a burning mountain falls into the sea and turns the sea into blood. Fire falls down on the rivers and the springs, trumpet three. Those are the sources of fresh drinking water. And fire falls, in a sense, on the heavenly, on on the heavens and on the heavenly sources of light, the sun and the moon and the stars. The same thing's going to happen when we get to the bowls. I'm not going to talk so much about the bowls. That comes later in the book, and we can't do everything in this week. The same four areas of human life and environment are affected. The land, the sea, the freshwater sources, the sky overhead in the first four bowls. But the great difference is that with the trumpets, only a third of each of those spheres is damaged, is affected. A third of the trees are burned up and the green grass. A third of the 
of the sea life in the sea. And, of course, John's, John's hearers would think of the Mediterranean Sea. We know of the other oceans as well. But only a third of those are affected. Uh, only a third of the rivers and springs are rendered undrinkable by being turned bitter and poisonous. Only a third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. Now, again, remember that with the sixth seal, we saw the sun, moon, and stars darkened. The stars dropped from the sky. We're wondering, why are there sun, moon, and stars still up in the sky to be darkened? Well, recapitulation, replaying the video. So this takes place before the very end that we saw in the sixth seal. And I would suggest that what, what John is being shown here in vision form is really the effects on human life of the four instruments that were revealed in the four seals. That is, the quest for more territory, conquering and to conquer, bloodshed, the red horse, famine, the the, the black horse, and then disease. And... John is being shown these things which happen in the world, which bring destruction, but never total destruction because God's restraining his wrath, are previews of the very end. They are brought about by human instruments who are often in defiance of God when all these things happen. But they are the weapons of warfare in the ancient and not so ancient world as well. If you want to invade a country and conquer a city, well, you burn off its crops. You burn through its, well, you burn through a state. So, on the, on the drive from the airport, uh, Pastor Marion and I drove by the off-ramp for Madison. And I remember my kids, when they lived in Georgia, taking us to Madison, pointing out that Madison somehow survived Sherman's horrible march through Georgia and was not burned down. But, you know, your state has experienced that form of warfare, just burning things off. Sea battles that bloody the sea. Poisoning the water sources. Maybe remember in the Old Testament at one point that Hezekiah managed to have an aqueduct built from a freshwater stream so that Israel could survive besiegements, so Jerusalem could could survive besiegements. Um, And then the darkening of the skies with smoke and so on. Whenever I read this now, I think we've, we've seen it on the news. Uh, with before the fall of Saddam Hussein from Iraq, uh, the burning Kuwaiti oil fields when he invaded uh, Kuwait. We've seen the skies darkened. Um, these are manifestations of human warfare. But the point that John's vision wants to make for us is all of these come as God begins to show his justice against the rebellious humanity, these come because the Lamb is in control. And they are trumpet sounds calling people to repentance, calling people to see. If we don't change our ways, ultimate destruction is coming. We need to turn to the true 
and the living God. Well, that's trumpets one through four. Restrained judgments. Trumpets five, six, and seven are grouped together. At the end of chapter eight, we read eight thirteen. John says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. That's a clue that things are going to be escalated. Things are going to, God's taking things up a notch with these last three trumpets and the kinds of judgments that will come. So with the sounding of now the fifth trumpet, we see locusts, as it were, coming out of the abyss in the vision, led by the ruler of the abyss, whose name is Destroyer. It's one of the names that we know from Scripture is applied to Satan. And they come out to afflict the people who have not been branded as God's people, who have not been sealed with God's seal, with God's name. And so people who've been serving the devil anyway now come out and they are now are tormented and tortured. They can't, the demons can't kill anybody. It says they can't kill anybody. And they don't, they're not like regular locusts because they don't destroy the physical world at all. That's also said here at the beginning of chapter 9. But they cause people inner torment. People have, Satan is like that. The people that love and serve him, what he delights is to torture them. He delights to torture his servants. He's just the opposite of Jesus, who delights to love and comfort and care for and heal his servants. Satan just tortures them. And so, John has shown a vision that says there's going to come a time when the people who follow the evil one experience despair, dismay, wish they could die. Because God is going to relinquish a little bit of his restraint of Satan and let Satan afflict Satan's own forces, own, own followers in the human realm. That's the fifth trumpet, the first woe, as it's described in verse 12 of chapter 9. Second woe. You didn't think we were going to get through all these chapters this morning in this first hour, did you? We're, running, we're, we're flying fast here, but we're, we're going to make it, and, and we're going to have some time for questions, and I bet now there will be. Um, second, well, Trumpet 6, chapter 9, verses 13 through 19. Uh, we need to look at this one a little bit more. I need to slow down a bit here. Um, it's on, in, in, in verse 14, uh, a voice from the altar of God says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So they released the forces at the river Euphrates who were released to kill a third of mankind, a third of humanity. Um, and then they're described uh, in their... Uh, in, in their armor and their and their right and they, they out they go out to right. What is all that about? Well, the river Euphrates 
out to the east of the promised land, and in some way kind of around the eastern border of Rome's control, the the Roman Empire. The river Euphrates was sort of the barrier. It was the Great Wall, as it were. There's countries talking about building walls, I think, these days, right? It's the wall to keep the Parthians from invading the eastern part of the empire. Of course, it was also from the Euphrates that in the Old Testament time, the Assyrians from the Tigris and Euphrates came in and took the northern kingdom captive and spread them out throughout the Assyrian Empire. And the Babylonians came in and took the southern kingdom into captivity in the days of Daniel and before that, Jeremiah as well. So it's the place where, from the Euphrates, the threats come from the east. And when the river is removed then it's as though the barrier protecting the civil order of Rome is taken away and chaos comes in. And so invasion happens. Uh, it's all in vision. Uh, when actually, when Rome finally fell in the 5th century A.D., the invasions came as much from the north as they came from the east. But the point is not so much about the fall of the Roman Empire. The point is that God had been maintaining, even, even with all of the arrogance and the evil that Rome would perform, that Rome would carry out in John's day. I think it's from probably the, the emperor in the very end of the first century, Domitian, who began empire-wide persecution of the church. Nero had done it, but only locally in the 60s. Domitian in the 90s began, and there were persecutions the next several centuries until the conversion of Constantine. But even for all the evil that Rome did, it also maintained a fair amount of order. And uh, what John is being shown in this vision is that the forces of order, though evil, are going to be dissolved, uh, and there's going to be threat from the east. Well, that's a pretty scary thought. And so between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, which isn't really sounded till the end of chapter 11, there's another interlude. There's another lull in the drama. And two things happen in chapters 10 and 11 in the interlude. Uh, I haven't given you all of those here in under... Uh, Oh, yeah, I, I have to some extent. There's a mighty angel who comes in chapter 10 to deliver the open book to John. So it's as though now John's prophetic commissioning is completed. He gives the book. The Lamb has opened the seals. He's revealed how he's going to be governing history, even through evil forces, even through disasters, leading to the day of judgment, but also the day ultimately of relief and rescue for his people. So now the book is open. The angel brings it to John and he says, we're right on the end of history, John. There's not going to be any more delays. As the trumpets have been sounded, I've been delaying my final judgment. In fact, at the very end of chapter 9, just before the interlude, uh, the comment is made that despite all of these judgments, the rebellious peoples of the earth have not repented. They haven't gotten the message. They've not turned back. God's people are being converted in every generation through the gospel. 
God's elect are being gathered in, the people for whom the Lamb shed his blood, whose names were written in his book from eternity past. They're being gathered in, but everybody else is just going on in their merry and miserable way, unrepentant. But now the angel says, God won't wait forever. There will be no more delay. So John, take the the open book, eat it, and preach it. That's part of this interlude vision. The other part is a puzzling vision in chapter 11 that makes two points, really. That God's people are exposed to hostile danger and that God's people are safe in the care of God. And the vision actually comes in two stages. There's first a vision of the holy city at the beginning. Rise and mention, chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It's given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. We scratch our heads and say, what in the world? Well, the holy city in the book of Revelation is God's church. So at the very end of Revelation, we're going to see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. That's God's people presented under the image of a holy city. So God says, in one sense, the holy city, this is not the physical human, or the, the, the physical site of Jerusalem in, uh, in, in Judah, uh, on, the, uh, on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. This is God's holy city. On the one hand, they're going to be trampled. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be harassed. They're going to be killed, even killed, trampled by the nations. For 42 months. But on the other hand, they're protected. So the outer court, the life of God's people, is vulnerable to attack and assault by those who want to destroy them. But the inner heart of God's people is protected. The inner sanctuary of God's people is kept safe at all times. So, God's people are exposed to attack from outside, protected for spiritual well-being from within. And then there's the mention of the two witnesses, and most of the rest of this chapter talks about them. Fascinating. Are they two simple, simply two individuals? Well, the two witnesses testify to the truth of God. They're described in imagery here that shows that they are like the two olive trees in the vision of Zechariah, the two olive trees are Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king. So they're prophets, and so they're priests and they're kings. But they're also clearly prophets. In fact, they do the kinds of things in this vision that in the Old Testament, in real history, Moses did and Elijah did. That is, they caused the water to turn into blood. And... They bind up the sky and, uh, and shut the sky so that no rain may fall. So they are prophets, priests, and kings. 
God's people are prophets, priests, and kings. That's the way the Bible describes us. In Jesus, we're prophets who speak the word of God. We're priests who can approach the presence of God. And we're kings who exercise dominion in the name of Christ. So it's not surprising that when we read in chapter 11, 7, that at a certain point, the beast arises and destroys, conquers, kills these two witnesses. We go over two chapters to 13, 7, and the beast conquers and kills the saints. The witnesses are a picture of the saints. They're a picture of the whole church, not just two individuals, but the whole church. Safe, protected by God, preserved until in each generation we bear our witness to Christ, but also under attack and at the very end of history, apparently the church is going to be close to extinction. But Jesus will come back. And as it were, raise his church from the dead. And then literally, raise us from the dead as well. That's complicated. I know that's complicated. Uh, And that, frankly, I have to tell you, the vision in 11 is one of the ones I'm still chewing over. I wrote something on it in Triumph of the Lamb. It's the best I can come up with right now. But I think that's what's going on there. But that theme, that two theme, exposed to attack from without, but protected by the power of God, That's the point. And then finally, the sounding of the seventh trumpet is really another view of the very end of history. So, the very end of chapter 11, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and then the loud voices in heaven announced, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You probably can't hear that verse without hearing Handel's Messiah. I would be tempted to sing it for you, but your memory is far better. It's majestic. That's what's going to happen at the end of history. So there's the preview of the very end. Christ has conquered, but he's working out his, his conquest throughout history. And uh, as the, the heavenly voices, the 24 elders go on to say, the time has arrived now for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints who fear your name, both small and great. So there you have seals and trumpets, mainly focused on helping God's people in the midst of their life in the first century and our brothers and sisters in the 11th century and us in the 21st century understand what's going on. The Lamb is expressing his judgments, but in restrained ways. Satan is expressing his hostility against the church, but Satan is being held back. He's being bound from really unleashing all that he would love to do to destroy the church. But God is preparing us for the day when Christ will come back and ultimately destroy Satan. And that's what the latter section, the the inner matryoshkadal that we're going to look at in the next hour, that's what that's about as well, uh, is about how God will ultimately bring victory for his people. <sighs> Take a deep breath. We have about eight or nine minutes. I didn't give us 15 for Q&A before we get to take, get a cup of coffee or whatever. So now the question comes, and here comes a microphone. 
what have I provoked in your hearts and your minds by way of questions over these chapters, basically 4 through 11? There's a question way over here to uh, your right, your left, my right. I always get inverted here. This may be a dumb question, but where do the Muslims today fall into the scheme of things? Well, where are the Muslims today in the scheme of things? Um, that, that's not a dumb question at all. Um, and, and I would say that the, uh, the aggressive, violent expansion of Islam is one manifestation of the kinds of outworking of hostility of the world against the, the church of God, um, as the reformers saw in their day as well. Uh, it's not the only one. I, I, I kind of think what Putin is doing in, in Ukraine is another display of it. And I think that's part of it, because it comes out in different ways in different ages, that's probably why Christians in all of the last 2,000 years have thought, this fits our time. It does. But yeah, Islam today, uh, violently in places, and then in other ways, in, in, through violence, but also through uh, through education and other advances, trying to influence the nations of Africa, for example. Uh, trying to extend its influence in a lot of different ways is one display of this aggressive push of the kingdom of Satan against the people of Christ. Yeah. Question on the center aisle. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, where does the millennial? Fit in, in all of this, we get this pre and post and amillennialism, and I've never been able to straighten that, get that worked out in my mind, but I really thought I understand. That is a great question, which I will answer very briefly now, and which we're going to spend the whole time in Sunday school tomorrow morning on, okay? Um, the, the short answer is that. The millennium, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, talks about two things happening during a thousand years. Satan bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And martyrs ruling. The vision is clearly related to Daniel 7, where God is in the midst of his court in heaven. So martyrs ruling in heaven over this expansive period of time. What I'm going to answer this more brief, more in length tomorrow. Uh, what starts the thousand years is the binding of Satan. Jesus says in the Gospels that his first coming is his binding of Satan. That's why he expelled demons from so many people. He said nobody could expel, could take, could take people out of Satan's house unless he bound the strong man. And now I'm taking Satan's property. So Jesus' first coming, his earthly ministry, his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement bound Satan. And as a result, unlike in the Old Testament, where God basically brought the knowledge of 
his salvation to the people of Israel with an occasional nation, a Gentile brought in, like a Ruth or a Naaman from Syria. But basically, God left the nations in the darkness, deceived by Satan. As a result, now the apostles preach in the New Testament that God is calling all the nations everywhere to truth, to life, to salvation. Satan cannot keep the nations in darkness. Doesn't mean he's not active, but it does mean that his kind of unchallenged control over the minds and faith of the nations is is over that Christ is advancing his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. That's why I sometimes say Revelation 20 is a text about world missions. Because Jesus has authority over everything in heaven and on earth. The gospel can go out and we can disciple all the nations. And what closes the thousand years is really an outbreak of huge global evil that is immediately followed by the return of Christ. Come back tomorrow for the bigger case. But the thousand years is this whole span of time that we're living in between the first coming of Christ and just at the time or just before the time of his second coming where the gospel is going forward. There's lots of persecution. There's a lot of opposition. There's lots of false teaching. But the gospel is going forward. The dragon cannot keep the nations in darkness right now. You talk about the uh, trumpets warning the people and calling them to redemption. But if they were not part of the elect, how could they come to redemption anyway? That, that's a very good question. Um, they couldn't uh, in themselves bring themselves to repentance. But God calls his elect to repentance through the means of the word. And sometimes God calls his elect to repentance when they're not believers yet through hard times. And, uh, and the point I think that's being made is that uh, while God uses means, he always brings people to, a, to repentance through means, but he always does it sovereignly. And our responsibility is to herald the gospel, inviting people, anyone, everyone, to repent and trust in Jesus. We can't read people's hearts. Uh, And at the same time, to recognize that even as we do that, if people don't respond, the very fact that they've heard the gospel heightens their responsibility for not responding. And they can't say, it's not my fault. God didn't make me repent. That's Paul's point in Romans 9. Why did he make me this way? No, they can't say that. They are responsible. Even though the only way any of us will come to repentance is by the Holy Spirit graciously changing our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. That's the best I can say on that one. There's some mystery there, too. Yeah. Another question over here on the other side of the aisle. Hello, Doctor. My question is the rapture. Now, I hear that the rapture is before, is right at the starting of the seven years. Then I hear also that the rapture is at the uh, midpoint of the seven years. And then I hear that the rapture is uh, from the midpoint to the end, somewhere in there. 
So would you clarify what you think or when you think the rapture would come? I will do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I've heard all those. And the more I study the Bible, the more I think I don't I don't think that Bible teaches any of those. I actually think that the Bible teaches that believers in Christ should anticipate at the very end of history, which is actually, if, I'm, if my last answer was correct, that the thousand years covers basically all of history from Jesus' ascension till just about the time of his second coming. So at the end of history, there is going to be a time of intense persecution and intense judgment by God a kind of a tribulation, a trouble that has not been paralleled anywhere in history. But I believe that God is preparing his people to go through that time, along with all the people that are under God's judgment, to go through that trauma in faith. And that God then, that Christ returns at the very end, and the dead in Christ rise first, then we who remain alive, if we should be in that generation, will be caught up together with him in the air. And that's the end. That's the destruction of death itself. The new heavens and the new earth follow the last judgment right at that point. So the other options that put a tribulation before a millennium and then find, and and sometimes, and, and often the ones I've heard, there's a tribulation and then the resurrection of believers and then the millennium, but then there's a rebellion of somebody And then the Lord comes back. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think the Bible teaches that the thousand years when Satan is constrained, restrained from deceiving the nations comes to an end in a time of intense suffering for God's people and intense judgment on the rebels. And then Christ comes back. We receive our resurrection bodies, whether those who have died or we who are alive, we receive the resurrection bodies. And then we get to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth where no more threats, no more dangers, no more curse, no more sin or sorrow. See, that's different from what I was taught. That's different from what you've heard. But I really think that's what the Bible teaches. Well, it is quarter after. I will... Let the people in charge make a decision about what we do now.